Welcome to In the Green Chair, an interview podcast series for people looking to begin or expand their career in the green economy. I'm your host, Anna Garson, and today's guest, In the Green Chair, is award-winning Canadian journalist and author, Alana Mitchell. How do you shape a topic into a story, and that's that's the real art of the piece. Because you, you can always come up with a topic, right? I mean, there's the topic is climate change, but how do you write about that? <laughs> you know, and, you know, like in a way that people will read and remember, and that will have meaning for people. Her book, Seasick, The Global Ocean in Crisis, is an international bestseller, which has been turned into an acclaimed one-woman play. On this episode, we talk about environmental journalism and the intersections between science, society, and the arts. Hello listeners, Anna here. So the audio quality is a little poor at the beginning of this interview, but it does improve after the first few questions. So stay tuned and thanks so much for listening. Enjoy the episode. So welcome to the Green Chair, Alana. Thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. I wanted to start off with your book. You're an international best-selling nonfiction book, CSEC, The Global Ocean in Crisis, was published in 2009. In your epilogue, you wrote a hopeful message about the stories we tell about the environment and climate science. You wrote, the story we tell matters because it alone determines the actions we take or fail to take. More than a decade later, do you still carry that same hope and sentiment in the work that you do now? I do. The, the trend line can only tell us so much. To me, it's all about the stories that we tell. I wrote a play based on the book that I that I wrote in. In the play, there's a line that says science can only take you so far, you know, and, and that's sort of how I feel. I feel that we need these heroes of investigation to tell us, you know, scientists to tell us what's going on, but but we also need other people to interpret it, translate it, make it meaningful to people like you and me. And those are the artists. What is that story for you? That it's not over, that the end of the story is still in play. My whole career really has been trying to marry the two, uh, art and science. Alana, you're an author, science journalist, a playwright, as you mentioned. Which do you find the most challenging of all of these professions? Oh, playwright, by far. It's challenging because in the moment, I'm because I'm also a performer, so I perform the play. So it's not just writing the material, which is incredibly hard. <laughs> it's a it's a whole other level of intellectual and emotional engagement, you know, from all the other writing I do. For me, art is playwriting, and performing is a is a higher medium, a medium that I ultimately I feel can be more influential and therefore I care more about how it comes off and then of course when I'm performing that is just the most intense experience of all of anything I've ever had is you know to be performed on stage for an hour and a bit you know with you know with a live audience is something that is just extraordinarily involving you know it just it takes everything why do you think playwright and performing is a medium that resonates with people more it's more intimate it's a lot more intimate i mean you can take up a book you can take i mean my seasick book or another book that i've written you could you can take it up and you can put it down and you can think about it and that's power i think that's got power a lot of journalism you read it you think about it maybe you go back to it maybe you refer to it another time but the books you you definitely like they sit on your shelf and and you 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 th- they take up space in your brain but when you're in a performance as a member of the audience you are living it you are there you are there, there's a level of 
of intimacy that is unparalleled. Um, and for me as a performer, it's magnified. I think it's almost amplified by the emotion I get from the audience. So it's a small audience. Usually it's just a few hundred people, but, um, but it's, it's unforgettable because you're, you, you know, you're, you're communing somehow you're, you're exchanging energy with the people in the room. And, and that gives it this, this sense of, uh, well, it's, it's an intoxicating intimacy for me. One of the hardest things about climate change is explaining it, the issues in a way that make people care. And with your career experience, it seems like you have been able to merge the science and the arts in a very beautiful way that resonates with people. You turned, as you mentioned, you turned seasick into an acclaimed one woman performance and that you have performed in Canada and internationally. And most recently you performed in Glasgow in Scotland at the tramway. What was that experience like for COP26? Oh, well, it, it was just so rich because already the, the sort of the level of knowledge of people about the state of the planet and the carbon load in the atmosphere was already very, very high. And sometimes that's, you know, it works like that sometimes, you know, when I do performances, but sometimes people are, are not aware of what's going on. It's a, it's a new experience to think about the earth having that kind of carbon load. So this was a very, very highly attuned audience to the climate issues. And so that made it even more resonant in some ways because everybody knew in that audience, I think, what the stakes are that we're dealing with here. And and that made a difference somehow. So, But it was also just the joy of being back in a live performance setting. Yeah, I can imagine, especially after such a long time of not having that in-person experience. Where do you find inspiration as a journalist and how do you decide on what topics to cover i think i get the inspiration from mainly from scientific papers at this point in my career i mean i think at other times in my life there have been i've relied on you know individual scientists maybe to talk to me about what's going on or i've people they would call me up for example when i worked at the globe and mail you know scientists would call me up and say look did you know that this was happening and you know i'd, I'd get information that way. Now I tend to read it in scientific papers because I track a whole raft of scientists and when they, when something is published that relates to a topic that I'm interested in, and there are many <laughs> topics that I'm interested in, but when something gets published then I follow it up and um, and I, I find that just a tremendously good source of information and I, I'm just endlessly intrigued by it. So, And there's always a story behind the paper. There's always a story behind the finding. There's always a, you know, a passion or a, some sort of magic that happens to make that paper show up in a journal. And that's what I'm looking for. So, so what does your research process look like? How do you decide which research papers to look at in the first place? Yeah, well, I get a lot of alerts. Um, as I say, I get Google alerts from people. Uh, you know, So I, I track a whole bunch of different topics across a range of different subjects. I mean, it's from physics to biology to socio... I mean, just a ton of different things. And there are scientists I really treasure whose, whose papers I always follow, but I also follow people who follow them. Sometimes some of the best stories come from brand new PhDs, you know, people who have been working on a subject for five or six years or more sometimes. And they've just, you know, and they found this enormous passion. They've got this, this different way of looking at things, you know, slightly different way of looking at things that, that advances the whole conversation. Of course, I always just read, I read the paper, but I also read, a lot of the 
the papers in the biblio as well so i i track it through to make sure i know where the information came from and it's it's kind of painstaking jeez (laughs) (laughs) that's super important yeah that's something people probably overlook when they're reading something going back to the bibliography well we're so lucky now because you can get everything on you know you can get pdfs online you used to have to go and go to go and look at the journals physically and uh you know i mean even if two decades ago you used to have to do that now everything is just you know you just get everything i mean i on this computer that i'm talking to you on, i probably have oh i'm gonna say at least tens of thousands of of journal articles that i've read and annotated and and more more and more and more every day but so there's this immense wealth that's just so easy to get on now that of information it's just and that makes it sometimes in some ways a little more complex because when you've got that much information how do you contextualize it how do you know what's what's uh, how do you know i feel overwhelmed <laughs> in in what other ways has your career as a journalist changed throughout the years well i used to be a daily newspaper reporter i mean that's how i started i worked at the Globe and Mail. I worked at a financial at the Financial Post for a while. Strangely, that was my first job out of journalism school, just because it was a recession and it was there, and I, you know, had a had a job, so I, I did it. Um, and then I went to the Globe and Mail and worked there for fourteen years as a daily news reporter, mainly. So that was that's a, that's a real fast churn. Now I tend to spend weeks, if not months, on each story at that, which is a really bad financial play, but. I'm not satisfied anymore with the easy stories. I, I do them sometimes just for money, but I, I'm not satisfied with them. Usually I, I keep a list, I keep a running list of, uh, you know, in my, on my computer, uh, a notes pad, a notepad kind of thing that I just, I just, and I whack all these ideas into it, things that I would like to write about. Because as you do this, the, the reward of doing all this deep research is that you come up with things that you know you can't get into this article. But wow, wouldn't it be amazing to write this? And all this stuff sort of comes together. And the, the trick is sometimes just to, you know, give myself permission to say, yes, this really is a huge story. And I've got to just, you know, find a buyer for it, find a place to publish it. In order to pitch it, you have to do some interviews. So in order to figure out what the actual story is, you have to do some interviewing, not just reading, because I do a lot of reading, but I, you actually have to talk to people and test theories, test ideas, because I could read something and I could get the wrong you know, conclusion from it. So I have to make sure that I'm right about all that stuff before I pitch it. So yeah, if, it's, if I'm going to pitch something, say with the New York Times or something, then I have to, I would have to um, probably do an interview or maybe two beforehand, but you wouldn't write the story because you wouldn't know exactly what the what the publication wants, you know? So usually what happens, I mean, the process usually is that I would, I have a, an editor, you know, who I really love working with and I just call that person up and say, you know, I'm thinking about this, this, this and that. Or sometimes the editor will just call up and say, what are you thinking about? And I'll just say, well, you know, I've been reading about this and I pull up my list and together we, I mean, I did that recently with an, with an, an editor, you know, we came up with, well, actually, I got the cat, the list here, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight stories, eight major features that I should write at some point, you know, and three of them, I think, are assigned. So, but that's a typical process. You would just, things I'm thinking about, and then it's just how do you shape a topic into a story? And that's, that's the real art of the piece. Because you can always you can always come up with a topic, right? I mean, there's the topic is climate change, but how do you write about that? <laughs> you know, and, you know, like in a way that people will read and um, remember, and that will have meaning for people. You know. Mm-hmm. 
And sometimes you can have maybe more questions than you do have answers, which makes it a little bit more complicated, I can imagine. I think that's good for the reader, though. I think it's good for the reader to come away from a story with questions and not just everything tied up with a bow, with all of the answers provided. I mean, I think good good journalism should make people continue to think about things. And, you know, sometimes that I can make that work and sometimes I can't. But I don't think it should be... I don't think we should give all the answers. I don't think we should even presume that we have the answers because when we're talking as journalists about these incredibly complex systems and changes to systems that need to happen, uh, we we rarely have the answers and I don't think we should pretend to. A little bit ago, we talked about some of the benefits that journalists face now, which is having access to so many research papers really in fast access. On the flip side, what challenges do you see young journalists facing today that you may not have dealt with when you were starting out? There's both a greater reliance on good journalism and a greater delegitimization of good journalism happening. And that interplay is different from when I began. I think when I began, there wasn't this, I mean, this this whole concept of, you know, writing something that is true and it being labeled by say as an example the president of a big democracy as fake news (laughs) you know which i mean that that phenomenon was unknown to me when i or at least it was differently configured when i first started being a journalist you would get you get i don't think so much governments directly or heads of state directly saying no no that's that's incorrect there is no climate change you would get them questioning the science there would be other mechanisms for corroding you know the information but to actually have it labeled fake news when you know that it's not when you know absolutely in your bones that what you're doing is uh, the best you can do to try to explain something that you know exists and and to then have a you know, be labeled something like fake news is very destabilizing. I mean, I'm to the point now where I, when I do interviews, I always tape them just to make sure that I've understood properly, you know, that I, I, I mean, so that I could go back and test my own, you know, I mean, I, of course I take notes, but I also now tape everything. And I, we were taught in journalism school never to tape, you know, never to tape an interview because it was too, you know, you got quotes that were too wordy. A transcribed quote is different from a note taken quote because you, you you know you you truncate I guess when you're you, if you can't get all the words down you truncate it. And what is that process like of going from journalism school to working in the field? I went to a really good journalism school. I went to I got, got a journalism degree at what was then called Ryerson University, or I think it was then Ryerson Polytechnical Institute. Now it's shifting its name again, and it was really really practical. I already had a degree. I had a degree in Latin literature and English literature from U of T before I went into journalism, and that was a great grounding because I had all this fabulous humanities stuff. You know, it was just terrific. Um, so going into a journalism program after that worked well for me, but it was a very practical program. And so, uh, it, uh, you know, going into newsroom was pretty uh, seamless. So as you reflect on your career and on the field more broadly, what are some qualities of a good journalist? Well, curiosity. I think that's the main one. That's the main one. And you have to have a lot of energy. I think you have to be really smart. I really do. Uh, I think that it's... You can't be lazy. You cannot be lazy. People read this stuff or listen to it and it matters. And uh, I think you have to take that seriously. 
Yeah, I like that. A common theme that I found throughout these past interviews that I found is is that curiosity and passion. A lot of people involved in sustainability are in it because they care and want to find out more ways to be a positive change. Speaking more about climate change, I know it, it's something that's being covered in youth outlets more than ever. What do you owe this increase to and do you think it will remain topical? The fundamental trend is that we're seeing more and more effects in our own backyards. And this was not true 10 years ago in the same way. I mean, you saw a little bit, you know, you saw the, maybe spring came a little earlier or, you know, the birds were a little bit different or something. Now you're seeing catastrophic effects all over the place, like the floods, the, you know, the forest fires, we're seeing droughts, we're seeing, it's it's happening, we're seeing the Arctic melts, you know, we're seeing all of this stuff happen in real time in our backyards. So I think that's one of the reasons it's it's gotten more attention. We have, to, we have to know what the situation is. I mean, I think knowledge, I, I do believe that knowledge is power. Not everybody has to know every single detail of the science, but the big broad strokes have to be at hand. We have to, we have to be able to, to say what these are. And, and we also have to be able to, and this is something that journalists have been really poor at, is putting it into, the, into a historical context. We've been really poor at explaining it in the history of the Earth's life, not in human life but in the earth's life what's happening now is really anomalous really anomalous i mean we haven't had this much carbon in the atmosphere for at least 22 million years it's stunning it's just stunning and more than half of that extra carbon has gone up into the atmosphere since i was a teenager so this is this is this is rapid rapid change rapid and uh you know and so our my discipline of uh, journalism has been really poor at putting it into that kind of context. We'll be right back. This interview series is part of the Green Collar Careers Program, brought to you by Relay Education. Relay is a Canadian charity that delivers renewable energy, environmental education, and green careers programs for youth. Remember to check out our website, relayeducation.com, and social media channels at Relay Education to find out when our next interview will be posted and to find resources on how to start your green career. And, and how does your writing style change depending on who the reader is? So when between writing your own books or writing a story for a newspaper? I've written five books and three of them are first person. And in the fifth one, one most recent book, it's I'm, I'm there. It's not primarily first person. I'm primarily the narrator in that book, not the first person narrator. But I do appear occasionally as a character in that book. So they're they're. They're different depending on the different um, materials, I guess. The play is very much, I mean, it's me on stage talking about my life, so it's its very much first person. Even in book writing and in journalism, there are a lot of trends and there are a lot of, I would, I would even say almost fads um, that, that go on. And so you have to keep ahead of those as well. I mean, I remember when I wrote Seasick, the book, it is in the first person. It's a science book in the first person. And this was incredibly controversial at the time. It was really controversial for my, even for my publisher. And, you know, finally they said, oh, okay, yeah, we can see how this works. And they were, they were good with it by the end, but it was um, not what they expected. And it was controversial to write that. Now it's not controversial at all. Now, now most of the science books I read are intensely first person, you know, but that's been a new phenomenal so partly it's it's figuring out what the trends are and and 
where you want your book to fit in stylistically. But then, of course, there's always topics, you know, because there are trends in topics as well. Yeah, no, I, I really enjoyed reading Seasick because it just felt like you were bringing me on your research experiences and it felt very personable. Also, when you and I spoke before, you told me that one big idea you want to leave our listeners with about the work that you do is to not give up. You left the Globe and Mail because you felt like you could explore and report on climate topics in greater depth in other ways. Where did you find that resilience back then to continue reporting on climate science? And as a follow-up to that, looking back on this decision, are you content with your career path? So the resilience was not, I don't think it was thought out or anything. It was just, I, it was a, it was a question of spiritual salvation. You know, I, mean, I, I couldn't continue to do what I was doing at the Globe because I knew that the real story was climate. I, I knew that. I, I could see the science. I was reading the science. I was reporting on it. It was inevitable. I couldn't not write about it because, you know, as journalists were trained to write about the most important story. And this was the most important story. I mean, uh, and I had the skill set to be able to cover it. And so I, I just I just had to, had to keep doing it. That that was just how it worked for me. It was, it was a really tough decision financially and had immense consequences financially for me. So we're not just here to be safe, though, right? I mean, we're not put here on Earth to just follow safe choices. I never really cared that much about money. I have been poor, and I don't like being poor, but it's not... Uh, you know, I didn't really feel that my mission in life was to acquire wealth. I just wanted to be able to support my kids and myself, and I've been able to do that, and that's, you know, that feels good. Sometimes I look and I think, why didn't I go into another more formal job where I could have had... <laughs> benefits and but you know I guess I'm a bit of a I'm a bit of a wanderer I mean I I love the intellectual freedom of being able to write about what I want to write about at least at least most of the time yeah no thank you for sharing that and and yeah like you said it it also the decisions you take you, you have to take a risk sometimes and it led you to other really beautiful experiences having done research in all continents it's insane the amount of things you've done I've had the most extraordinary adventures really and they're not finished <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm only 60. I have, I have so much more to do, right? I think there are people who have full-time jobs at newspapers who do have those kinds of experiences, but that was not going to be my fate had I stayed in that particular job at that time. So it's all a trade-off. I can imagine there are also frustrations that come with that. And do you ever have moments of frustration as a journalist presently, and how do you overcome them? It's actually with the pay structure, which, you know, I mean, freelance journalists, typically we get about a dollar a word, and sometimes sometimes you get a bit more than that. But that is, I think, the same rate of pay as in the 1950s. It's an incredibly low rate. And now I see, I mean, I follow a lot of people on Twitter who, you know, post jobs about new, new freelance opportunities. And in some cases, the pay is a lot less than that. And I'm thinking, how do they think people can make a living at that? I mean, it's just, it's really, you have to be incredibly well-connected and incredibly busy all the time and do a bunch of short, unsatisfying stories in order to really make a living at this stuff. So I, I think it's not valued properly. I think it, it should be, you know, it should be paid a lot better. What advice do you have for young writers who are looking either to become a journalist or write about environmental issues? The main thing is to decide why you want to do it because it's really hard. <laughs> so you have to have a really good reason to do it, I think. And you have to know what that reason is and you have to decide what it is that you can bring. What, you know, what are your gifts and what are, how do they play into this big, this big picture? What's one of the most exciting experiences that you have had in your career as a climate journalist? 
the ones that really stick with me are the ones, you know, where I just get this little tiny glimpse into the mind of a scientist who's right at the forefront of, you know, of research, who is just finding out stuff that nobody else has ever known. You know, I, I had I had an interview, I'm going to say it's two years ago now, with this woman. She's at the University of Arizona, I believe. Going, she's in Arizona someplace, and she's and she and she works on the Southern Ocean, and she is absolutely brilliant. And I phoned, I I did a Zoom call with her, and it was like the 27 minutes that totally changed my life. It was one of those. I just had no idea, and I and I you know have been working on the ocean, you know the science, working on reporting the science of the ocean for a long time. But she just blew my mind, and it was just this this whole sense of just peeking into the brilliance of somebody who has spent a lifetime looking at these things and uh, oh god it's just I and I could name a dozen others but it's that it's that moment it's just you know being in the presence of true genius and you know the privilege of being able to just tap into that passion that's so exciting you get to hear from so many different people and get a glimpse of their life and their passions and how can people connect with you and find out more about the work that you do? Probably the best way is on my authory page. So it's authory.com and then there's Alana Mitchell. There's a, I have a page there and that's just, and that's just all the, that's a bunch of journalism I've written over the years. So it's, but it's the most up-to-date way of figuring out. It's not play stuff. It's just journalism. So, and then I have a website, which is alanamitchell.com. Well, thank you so much, Ilana. It's been an absolute pleasure listening to your career path, and I can't wait to hear or read about all your next adventures. Thanks, Anna. Thanks for sitting down with us in the green chair today. Once again, I'm your host, Anna Garza, and stay tuned for our next episode to learn more about the different paths people take to working in the green economy.